it's well said that we need reminders of who we are and how blessed we are. And no country is perfect, but I'm wearing my patriotic tie, and like I said, it's Independence Day weekend. We are very thankful for the country that we have been in. And one way we are reminded of what God has given in this country is the many national sites that we have. So again, kids are in here, a little bit of interaction. I want you to raise your hand if you have been to any of these places. Have you been to the White House? Raise your hand. Okay, a few. How about the Gettysburg Battlefield? Who's been to Gettysburg? Oh, a little more maybe even. All right, how about the Statue of Liberty? Most. All right, let's, let's bring in a little more local. Sutter's Fort in Sacramento. Who's been to Sutter's Fort? California side. Alcatraz Island. What's funny is my dad's lived in San Francisco Bay Area for like 30, 40 years and has never been to Alcatraz. Can't believe that. Um, how, who's been to the 9-11 memorial? A few. Okay, and how about Ellis Island? So all these are important sites of history. And it's fascinating is I was on a tour in Israel and I kept seeing in all their little important sites of history, these 19-year-old girls with automatic weapons walking around. And I'm like, what's going on here? And I found out Israel has an important policy to try and build patriotism in their people. One, they have mandatory military service. Every young adult serves in the military. But then on the military's money, they take those young men and women to every historical site and they show them, this is who you are. This is the history of our nation and our people. And this is what you might have to fight for. Remember how blessed you are. The church, too, needs guidance and remembrance. Every generation, let's be honest, in our own lives, we need it every day. To remember what God has done and the good that he is doing. In his wonderful book, the gospel primer, Milton Vincent says, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day because the gospel is the power of God. We need to remember that God is good and what he has done. This psalm does that very well. Psalm 126 is thanking God together. Israelite poems weren't like ours where they had rhyming with sound but often they had a rhyming of theme, and they were very well thought out poetry. Clearly, the main focus is in the rep repeated line, right? Over and over again, for his steadfast love endures forever. That, that's the focus of it. And so again, I'm gonna say, I'll say the first line, and then I'll point at you, and you'll say the second line as we read through this together, okay? Uh, but even as you think about the whole structure of the psalm, here's, you can see it up there in a little bit, that there is a structure to the psalm. It starts off in the first section, A, exhortation to thanksgiving. Then it reminds us what God has made and done. Then how Yahweh struck Egypt. Then Yahweh struck the Amorite kings. And then it starts to work away back saying that Yahweh has given gifts to Israel. And it finishes off with another exhortation of thanksgiving. It's what we call a chiasm or an X across. It goes in and out. This is a poetic way. And so we'll see there's this beginning and end call to give thanks. So if you're taking notes, and you'll see in there, we're going to talk about this in a simple way. 
with a little acronym for the sake of memory, five ways God will never amend his promises. So you must thank him. There are five ways that God doesn't amend. He doesn't change his promises ever. And so you, whether you're a Christian or not, must give thanks to this God. Starts off in verses one through three, focusing on thanks to God because he is God alone. We can give thanks that he is God alone. Verses one through three. Last reminder, I'm gonna read the line. I'm gonna point at you to say the next part, okay? All right, let's do this. Verse one, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. Excellent job. Now this psalm begins with a command. Give thanks. Now, that doesn't quite get the understanding of the Hebrew there. Because it's not just give thanks like, thank you, God. It actually word means to confess or acknowledge the thanks because of what you have been given. All creatures, as we'll see when we get to the end of the psalm, must recognize the truth. God is good. Yahweh is good. Of course, the transliteration of L-O-R-D in caps into English is the name Yahweh. Theologians like to call this the omnibenevolence of God. You know the omnis. He's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. And he's omnibenevolent. He is all good. Wayne Grudem defines God's goodness as that he is the perfect sum. He's the perfect source. He's the perfect standard to that which is wholesome. That which is for our well-being. That which is virtuous, beneficial, and beautiful. A lot of terms just to say that God isn't just like morally good. He is beautifully good. And Yahweh is the good God and good Lord of all. He is the God of gods. He is the Lord of lords. Everything is underneath him. No matter what a person's faith is, no matter if they claim to follow a different God, God, Yahweh, Jesus Christ, is their God. But perhaps... The strongest evidence for this is actually found in this repeated word again and again. His steadfast love endures forever. In Hebrew, it's only just a couple words. It's just the love of him, the hesed love of him forever. Now, I know some people find this a little bit cheesy because it's a mouthful, but in the children's book, the Jesus Storybook Bible. They're trying to get an, a, a sense of what this word means. And they describe hesed as God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's a bit of a mouthful. But again, never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And this gets a little bit of the richness and depth of this Hebrew word hesed. You, you can see how much power is in it to the psalmist because he keeps using it again and again and again. Why is God this way? Because of his unbreaking love. It's the love of God that moved him to make promises to Israel. And it's the love of God that keeps those promises 
with Israel. When Israel continually sinned, and you just know the story, we'll just get into it a little bit, they disobeyed God again and again. It is God's loving kindness, his steadfast love that is the reason he continues to help them. Perhaps most importantly, as Pastor Yuri has been showing as going through the book of Ephesians, that the greatest gift that God gives, the greatest expression of his loving kindness is found in Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7, it says, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness, his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. If you ever question God's goodness, if you ever wonder, is God really steadfast love? Is he kind? Remember, he killed his son for you. He put all of your punishment onto his son. That expresses his love and kindness, his steadfast love. Now, as you're going through this, you might ask the question, why does he repeat this over and over again? There's 26 verses, and he says this 26 times. And I think, and a number of commentators agree, that this is what in the Old Testament is called a covenant renewal, where they remember God's promises given to them, and they commit to obey. So you might remember covenants are made to specific people, like the Abrahamic covenant. God came to Abraham and said, I will bless you, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, and here's all the things you have to do, and I will be with you, and I will watch over you, right? And then Abraham dies, and Isaac comes down, and God meets with him and reminds him, oh, remember that covenant I made with your father? It's made with you as well. And then Israel's given a covenant at Sinai with Moses, and then they mess up for 40 years, and God meets with them in Deuteronomy and says, hey, remember that covenant I made with your parents? I'm making it with you. And Sunday nights, Pastor Uri is teaching through the book of Joshua. And we get to the end of Joshua, and he gathers all the people together on two sides of this deep valley. And I, I've been there in Israel, and you can picture just thousands of people on one side of a valley and another side. It's like a gully. And they're just looking at each other, and they're gathering, and it's a great festival. And then Joshua gets up in Joshua 24, verse 23, says, Put away the foreign gods that are among you. Pastor Yuri's been bringing up, like, they went through 40 years in the wilderness. They were brought into the promised land. You know what they still have? Idols. And he said, Incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord, our God, we will serve. His voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. Now, he doesn't make a new covenant. The covenant is the same as what was made in Sinai. What he's doing is reminding them, hey, let's renew this covenant once again. And so this is a back-and-forth call. He said, put away your gods, and they responded, yes. You know what's happening here? It's once again, the psalmist is saying, give thanks to the Lord, and the people are responding, for his steadfast love endures forever. Why do we do these things? 
because God has his said, never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. God is still their God, and they must remind themselves and say once more, there is no other. Even as Israel was taken out of Egypt, they defeated enemies more powerful than them. They went into land and conquered it that was not theirs, and they kept their idols. And we think, what in the world? Like, Yahweh saved you. You saw a pillar of fire and a cloud. You saw food drop from heaven. That doesn't happen. And yet, we know idols are not just statues, right? In Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul said, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, covetousness, which is idolatry. To covet something, to say, I want that, I need that to be happy, is to make an idol. It's often been said, our hearts are idol factories constantly trying to pump out and form new idols that we think can be God for us. And in that moment, we need to remember, God is God. There is no other. And these truths need to be passed on to each generation. Just like Israel had to do this again and again to remind the people to focus them back on God, so today, every Christian parent, every Christian grandparent, Every spiritual uncle or aunt or spiritual big brother or big sister needs to look at those around you and say, remember, God is God. He has carried me through these many years. I will not forsake him, and you shouldn't either. We need to remind each new generation, God is God. There is no other. It's not enough just to say, be good. No, serve God. And We need to remind ourselves every day, God doesn't change. You know, it's so easy to make people your idol. You know, they disappoint you because people change. One day they're going to have expectations for you that you can meet. And the next day, their expectations are going to shift. And you're like, I thought I was doing what you wanted, but you changed your mind. God doesn't change. Perhaps even as you're thinking about that idea of covetousness being idolatry, and, and you start to think, you know, perhaps there's something in my life, I'm taking even a good thing that I would want, and I'm turning it into a God thing. It's becoming an idol in my life. And the first step to respond to those idolatries is simply to say and confess, no, God is God. Jesus is God. He is God and Lord of all. And so I take my desire for love from my husband, respect from my wife, a secure future, obedience from my children, good health, comfort in my life, a political system that I think works correctly. I put all those things under him because his love is better than life. We have to confess, I have placed something in the wrong position to you, God. It's yours. You give and take away. And like Job, I will say, blessed be the name of the Lord. That doesn't mean you can't desire that thing or try and even work towards it, but you must say, this is less important than God because God alone is God. 
And because God alone is God, secondly, we can give thanks that he made all. Verses four through nine, the psalmist goes all the way back to the beginning, to creation, and says, give thanks that he made all. All right, ready? We're gonna do this again. So I'm gonna say it, you're gonna repeat, starting in verse four. To him who alone does great wonders. To him who by understanding made the heavens. To him who spread out the earth above the waters. To him who made the great lights. The sun to rule the day. The moon and stars to rule over the night. This, of course, is reflecting on the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the very first words of the Bible are, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of the God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light and was good, and the God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters from under the expanse, from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the waters be the heavens, be gathered together in one place, and let there be dry land. And so it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Just jumping ahead to verse 16. And God made the two great lights, the great light in the rule of the day, and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God sent them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was morning and there was evening the fourth day. Here in verse four of Psalm 136, he starts this explanation of creation, of saying, to him alone who does great wonders. It's the word miracles, right? And I think we often think of miracles as when God breaks the natural laws, when God does something different. And there's something true to that. But theologian John Frame says, miracles should be seen as an extraordinary demonstration of God's lordship. God showing that he is Lord of all. That's what he just said here. Like, give thanks to the Lord of Lord. What shows God is Lord more than when he said, let there be light in the midst of nothing? And you know what there was? Light. He said, let there be land. And there was land. Let there be sun and moon. And creation itself came into existence based merely upon his words. God made things. And while some people... Deists will say 
that God is a cosmic clockmaker. He makes the clock, and then he gives it to us, and he walks away. And it's our responsibility to keep it finely tuned and working together. This psalm is very important because it's saying the same God who created is the same God who gives us steadfast love. He is the same God who is involved in our lives. And this is important. In the midst of a world where there were many gods competing over creation, Pastor James Hamilton writes, the heavens were not made by the Greek gods. The sun is not some Egyptian deity, nor does the moon deserve worship. The stars are not pagan heroes shining up in the night sky. God made all these wonders to captivate and stimulate human imagination. As Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. And it is this God who watches over them. The God of the Bible is creator. He, he made all, and he has to be creator for the scientific process to work. You know the scientific process, right? Hypothesis, experimentation, you get results, and you repeat. And the process should be that if you don't get the same results from the same experimentation every time, then you have to change your hypothesis or your process. Like, something's wrong. And so key part, scientific process, is this thing called repeatability. Well, you'll see in your bulletin, I put a quote there, but scientist and author Stanley Jackie writes, the Christian idea of creation made another crucially important contribution to the future of science. It consisted in putting all material beings on the same level. See, unlike the pagan Greek cosmos, there is no divine body in the Christian understanding of the cosmos. See, divine bodies in the ancient world are capricious. Gods could do whatever they wanted. And a world that is full of divine bodies be, does not behave in a repeatable manner. Ra, the sun god, could choose to rise today, or he could choose not. You weren't really sure. If you, if you do one thing, he writes, one day, the same thing the next, there is no reason to expect that you will get the same result both days. See, the Christian belief in the creator allowed a breakthrough in thinking about nature. Nature is repeatable because God, the creator, is faithful. He made nature to continue on the same. Jesus Christ is the creator. Creation isn't God. And today we live in a world of scientism. Now, many young people, you young people, you're going to hit a school somewhere, or, or even if you are listening on the news, you will hear this idea that science cannot be open to the idea of God no matter what because, well, we refuse the evidence. Or we must listen to what is called the scientific consensus rather than the evidence and go through the scientific process. Now, and I, I don't claim to know everything. I have a degree in biotechnology from, uh, from the University of California. But the fact is, we can dig together into the many questions that come up. 
come, if you have questions about the issues of what science and religion go together, the issue of evolution versus God, how does that work? Come and talk to the leaders of the church. You know, we can work through some of those answers to question together. But I, I need us to remember, as apologists have been saying for a long time, science doesn't speak. Science is a process, not a person. Science doesn't have a voice. Scientists speak. And no scientist knows everything, right? Instead, even those scientists have to rely upon the worldview that the Bible gives. Creation is the same day after day because of God. Now, I think the fact that God is creator also has a very practical truth as well. Because he's the one who made your body, right? And, and some of us have bodies that do not work the same as everybody else's. Or maybe not the same as they used to. Like Moses saying, our tongue is not good. And God said, who made your tongue, Moses? And I think we can give thanks to God that even though this fallen world corrupts his creation, like because of sin, things aren't the way they should be. God did not design bodies to fail. But God is sovereign over every trial he allows in your life to show his steadfast love. We're going to get there in a moment, but if God did not bring Israel into Egypt and enslavement, they would not see the joy of the exodus. If God does not bring you through your trial, you would not see the joy of his steadfast love. So in the midst of physical trials, you know, go to your doctor, follow good science rooted in a creator, but do not forget, brothers and sisters, do not forget prayer. Do not forget that you need to go to God and realize, like Paul did, ultimately, the goal is not just to get health and strength or to be like everyone else, but the goal is for God's strength to be perfected in your weakness. So let him do that. Now, we saw God is God. God is creator, and we can thank him, but this creator interacts with his creation. He cares about his creation, and so third, give thanks that he emancipates sinners. Give thanks that he emancipates, he frees, he saves sinners like you and me. Verses 10 through 15. Let's do it again. You ready? Verse 10. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt and brought Israel out from among them, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. To him who divided the Red Sea in two and made Israel pass through the midst of it. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. Verses 10 through 15. He emancipates sinners. And they're reflecting on the fact that God rescued them from Egypt in the Exodus. We know this story, right? The children of Israel, also known as Jacob, went down to Israel during a famine as Joseph led them there. 
and they were saved from famine, and they served as shepherds in the land of Goshen. But a Pharaoh arose who did not know the good that Joseph had done for Egypt, and he starts to enslave the Israelites, and he starts to have their babies killed because he's worried about them becoming greater than the Egyptians, and he works them to death. And God sends Moses to save them. God sends Moses to come and says, let my people go. But Pharaoh kept resisting. He sent plague after plague to show that God was superior to all the idols of Egypt. All their gods were nothing. And each of the plagues was tailor-made to show that God is weak before Yahweh. And then verse 10 reminds us of the 10th plague. The final act was the death of every firstborn Egyptian. And that final act freed God's people as Pharaoh relented. And they left and they went out. God carried them and he brought them to the Red Sea. And as they stood at the Red Sea, Pharaoh changed his mind again. And he's like, they're stuck at the Red Sea. I am come and I am going to capture them and I'm going to kill them again. And Yahweh split the Red Sea and the people walked on dry land, but Pharaoh going into there was killed as the waves rushed back over him. This love of God that saved the people is also synonymous with justice. The justice Yahweh does to his enemies is equal to his steadfast love towards Israel. God stopping the sin of the Egyptians, even through something as scary as the death of the firstborn, is steadfast love, is saving his people. These are all actually acts of love because Israel didn't deserve this. We read later in Ezekiel 20, where God is reflecting back on the Exodus, and he said in Ezekiel 20, verse 5 through 8, Cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am Yahweh, your God. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things from their eyes feasted on them, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Again and again, we keep saying this even until Joshua. You know where those idols came from that they carried into the promised land? Egypt. They were worshiping idols for 400 years. You know why they had to put blood on their doorposts? Because they deserved to die too. Israel had rebuffed God's commands. But God, in his steadfast love, provided a sacrifice for them. They're lambs. So the plagues fell on the Egyptians alone. God saves sinners. We all know the hymn Amazing Grace, right? Even my non-believing friends just love the beauty of Amazing Grace, especially with bagpipes, right? There's just something about the power of those. No other songs sound, no, I'm sorry, someone was not gonna like it. There are few other songs that actually sound good with bagpipes, okay? But Amazing Grace sounds amazing, <laughs> doesn't it? And the writer of that, John Newton, in the last two months of his life on earth, was barely able to speak. 
You recall he was a man who was a slave trader for years, became a Christian, became a pastor, and he was barely able to speak, so he was having to write things down. But one, in those last two months, he was able to just barely get out the words, and his companions wrote them down. He said, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great savior. Does that carry the same weight with you, Christian? That we can be thankful that God saves because we see that we are sinners. Pastor Yuri has been doing a great job going through the book of Ephesians and trying working us through this issue of salvation not really being about us. That we don't have right to say, well, I'm so great, I saved myself. I was smart enough spiritually to pick up on what God was selling. God was trying to give me the gift, and I accepted it while all my friends, they're stupid, they didn't get it. No, he's been showing very well. We are not able to be prideful thinking that we figured out these spiritual things. God saved us in spite of ourselves often. His steadfast love is the hound of heaven that Spurgeon talks about, going after and bringing people to himself. Thus, this means you and I, Christians, go into all the world and we tell people, Jesus is the Savior. And we say it to the most undeserving, to the wicked terrorists and criminals, God's sovereignty has never been a problem for evangelism because the source of hope for it because we know God has people who can hear and we tell them, do we not? God is a good God. He is a creator God. He is a saving God and his love gives us opportunity then, fourthly, to give thanks that he defeats the nefarious had to come up with a good word for that. That's nefarious sounds so good. He defeats the nefarious. He defeats enemies, the wicked. Verses 16 through 24. Again, go along with me, starting in verse 16. To him who led his people through the wilderness, to him who struck down great kings, And killed mighty kings. Sihon, king of the Amorites. And Og, king of Bashan. And gave their land as a heritage. A heritage to Israel, his servant. It is he who remembered us in our lowest state and rescued us from our foes. The great kings, Sihon and Og, you probably have no idea who these people are. You're like, okay, why do each of them get their own line in this psalm? And that's understandable, but actually... Their names are all over the Bible. If you're reading through us with us through the Bible in two years, we're in Joshua, and you may have come across this passage in Joshua chapter 2, verse 10, 
few days ago. Joshua 2.10, Rahab. You know the Rahab who saved the spies, Rahab? She says, we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea. Pretty big deal. Before you, when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. Crossing the Red Sea, defeating these two kings. These two kings are mentioned in Joshua, repeatedly, in the book of Psalms, in Nehemiah, in the book of Numbers. David mentions them. This is Israel's D-Day. Like we get like, so if, if crossing the Red Sea was like their escape, that, that's, that's when the people were able to get across the English Channel and escape the Nazis. This is D-Day for them. Not necessarily the final victory, it's just the beginning, but this was the initial, we have made it in. The promised land is being given. In Numbers 21, you can turn there if you want to or just listen. In Numbers 21, verse 21 through 25, I'm just going to highlight these. Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, saying, let me pass through your land. And he says all these ways, we're not going to bother you. We're just going to come on through. Just let us through. But Sihon would not allow Israel to pass through his territory. So he gathered all his people together and he went out against Israel to the wilderness. You get that? Like they just wanted to pass through. They offered peace as God told them and he refuses and they battle and God gives victory. They took possession of the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. And this becomes the first land for the tribes of the Transjordan across the river. Some of those tribes make their homes there. And they defeat him, and then they go a little bit further, and Og comes about. Og, Numbers 21, verse 34. But the Lord said to Moses, Do not fear him, for I have given him into your hand and all his people and his land. And you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. Og comes out to battle them, to try to destroy Israel as they come through, and he is defeated. And they take his land as well. And the first beginnings of the promised land are being created. These kings were defeated, not by Israel's greatness, but by Yahweh. Because they decided to fight and to try and say, we don't want Israelites and we do not want Yahweh, their God. Now, back in Psalm 136, after recounting this history and remembering how God started giving them the land, the psalmist makes an interesting turn in verse 23. He changes from the past to saying, it is he who remembered our lowly estate. He makes it the first person plural, the present issue going on. He and this company of worshipers that he is calling out to identify personally through this reciting of God's steadfast love that God did not just remember their ancestors, but he remembered them. Now, it is thought that because this Psalm 136 comes right before Psalm 137, and if you look down at 137 verse 1, it says, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept, when we remembered Zion. 
it's thought that this Psalm 136 was written at the same time by the exiles in Babylon when things are bad. Remember, Israel disobeyed God and they got the judgment they were promised. God's steadfast love meant he keeps his promises and his promise was, if you continue to disobey me, one day you will go to exile. And they did. And they were taken away from their homes and they were prisoners in a foreign land. And you know what they said? He has heard us. He's looked upon our lowly estate. But I want to point out something interesting that he's doing here. For if you recall, the exodus happened in 1446 BC. The return from the Babylonian captivity happened in 538 BC. So the psalmist, as he's writing this, and as the people are recounting, they are saying the loving kindness, the steadfast love of God has not changed in 900 years. God loved his people by bringing justice on those who hurt them, by bringing victory 900 years ago. And you know what? 908 years later, God is doing it once again. God stops the nefarious. He defeats his enemies. And I, we, there's a sense where we sometimes like draw back on some of that language. Defeating kings, wiping out peoples, conquering their territory. And yet you think about every superhero movie or every war movie or every good story where the bad guys are defeated. And yes, we know that, you know, people are corrupt and so there isn't always quite black and white lines. And yet there is something else. We know vengeance is wrong, but justice is right. Stopping wickedness is right. And God says that that desire to stop evil is good. That rejoicing over evil being stopped is good. And we, brothers and sisters, need to do what the psalmist does here. We need to take the ancient words of the Bible, and we need to know it still applies to us today in the 21st century because God has not changed. This book is old, very old but it can be trusted when it says that the surpassing hope of heaven makes every trial in this life seem light and momentary in comparison. Every moral issue that we might question, God's word says, is better. Now, I want to encourage some of you also to consider, am I one of the nefarious? Am I one of the enemies of God? You might not feel like you are. You might be a very nice person. You might be a good religious person who believes in religious things, who goes to church at times. But the Bible says that if you are trying to be good enough on your own, if you're trying to be a good person and do your good deeds, that you are actually spitting in God's face because you are trying to set your standard versus trusting in what God's standard is. You are trying to say, here's what the way it should be. And God is saying, no, you need to listen and trust me. But forgiveness of Christ is available. If you start to think like, wow, like, am I actually doing it God's way or my way? Just say, God, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. 
and forgiveness is available quick and easy. If you start to wonder what it means to be a Christian, like truly to submit to Jesus Christ, to follow him, come and talk to myself, to Bing, to even someone around you. Ask them, like, what does it mean to follow Christ? And we can talk to you about that. Because God does defeat his enemies. And there is eternity of just punishment in hell waiting for those who would fight against God and his ways. The psalm concludes the final two verses. After reflecting on he is good, he is creator, he is savior, he is the defeater, and lastly, give thanks that he distributes every good thing. Verse 25 through 26. Last time, you guys have done great. He who gives food to all flesh... Give thanks to the God of heaven. All flesh is all creatures on earth. They get their food from him. As James says, James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. All blessings come from from Yahweh. We read this book in Thanksgiving with the kids years ago that was talking about how this little boy has some toast in the morning. He wants to thank the people who gave this toast. So he thanks his mom, and his mom's like, no, you gotta go. I bought it from the store. He goes and thanks the store owner. And he's like, oh, no, 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 you gotta, it was brought here by this delivery truck driver. He goes and thanks the delivery truck driver. They're like, oh, no, you gotta go to the mill. The mill or the baker. He goes to the baker and the baker tells him to go to the miller and the miller tells her to go to the farmer and the farmer looks at him and says, yeah, I can work really hard, but you know where all the energy comes from to grow this? He points to the sun. He said, who made the sun? God made the sun. And so, little Eric, you need to give thanks to God. All people, irregardless of their religion, or faith, are given gifts from Jesus Christ. And we, as Christians, are then called to tell all people, give thanks to Jesus Christ. Summarizing it up, we've seen he is God alone. He made all. He emancipates sinners like you and me. He defeats nefarious enemies he distributes every good thing. God will not amend his promises. And you know what? It's communion time. We are going to celebrate communion together. And if baptism is a sign that we are brought into the new covenant, it's the new birth, it's actually the new exodus. Israel passed through the Red Sea. We passed into the waters. Baptism is initiation. Communion is covenant renewal. It is the sign and seal of us saying, this is still true. Baptism happens once. Communion happens repeatedly. Baptism is just you being baptized, but communion is us doing this together. We are preaching the Lord's death until he comes. And so this act is like this psalm. 
you and I will be saying together is love, his steadfast love endures forever. And so we believe. I think I used to always think marriage vows were cool. But marriage renewals, you know, you know when people like they, they have a second wedding or they have a, they have vow renewals. And I was like, seems so silly. Like you already had a wedding. What, what do you want to just have another party again and get dressed up and take pictures? And yet the traditional vows are very powerful. They say, in the name of God, I blank take you so-and-so to be my wife or husband, to have and to hold from this day forward for better for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until parted by death. This is my solemn vow. And a vow renewal is simply saying, you know what? That promise is still enacted. That promise is still true. And that love is what we're talking about, the steadfast love of God. God's love is for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until he brings us home. May we renew that again together. Let me pray. Lord, we pray for this time as we remember what you have done, how you have cared for us, O oh Lord, and how you grant us the blessing of your son. May we remember now his life and death, his body given for us. And may, Lord, more people come to believe you because of the praise of your wonderful name, O oh Jesus. Amen.